You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Welcome to Communication Mixdown, I'm Rima Rattan. In the middle of April, Australia's Prime Minister Scott Morrison attended a National Australian Christian Churches Conference in the Gold Coast. A video of his speech was broadcast by Vineyard Church and distributed by the Rationalist Society soon afterwards, leading to public discussions about the separation of church and state in Australia. It's worth noting that Morrison is the first Pentecostal Prime Minister Australia has had. Discussing the role of religion in Australian politics with me, in the order you will hear from them, are Joanne Cruikshank, Tanya Levin and Wendy Mayer. Dr Joanne Cruikshank is a historian of Christianity in Britain and Australia from the 18th century onwards. She now works on religion and race, particularly the role of Christianity in Australia in relation to Aboriginal missions. Tanya Levin grew up in the church known as Hillsong and is the author of the 2007 book People in Glass Houses, an insider story of a life in and out of Hillsong, which was re-released in 2015. The book outlines her story growing up in the church as well as other experiences and some theory about what takes place in Hillsong and how it became what it is with its focus on money, celebrities and music. Wendy Mayer is a professor of Christianity with a specialization in early Christianity and particularly social history and also in contemporary religious violence and radicalization. This is an edited version of the first half of our conversation. I started our discussion by asking Joanne to explain what evangelical Christianity is. So the evangelical movement has its roots in 18th century Britain and It emerged really as a movement of reform and revival within the the existing churches of the time, particularly within the Church of England. And it called people to a new kind of relationship with God and also with the structures of the church. It's sometimes been described as having four particular characteristics Um, a focus on the Bible, a focus on personal experience, uh, a particular concentration on the death of Christ and the meaning of that, and also a a really an activist focus, which I think is probably um, interesting in terms of Morrison's um, evangelicalism. Historically, and I think in a contemporary world as well, evangelicals have have wanted to change things. They initially wanted to change the church and to reform it, but from the outset they have really been committed to reforming society and the world more broadly, both spiritual reform by, by calling people to this, what they would see as a, a real relationship with God, but also through social and political reform. So, for example, evangelicals were major 
contributors to the movement for the abolition of slavery. They were many of the first wave feminists were evangelicals. It kind of host of, of social and political reform movements, as well, of course, as massive missionary activity. So they've ha- there is that kind of long history of concern beyond the walls of the church. The religion that the prime minister has practices rather is a type of evangelicalism. So, I mean, there are evangelical Pentecostals, there's Catholic Pentecostals. So Pentecostalism is a, a thing on its own. Pentecostalism is about the very physical experience of Christianity and, you know, enjoying it through physical experiences and physical expressions, the dancing, the singing, the clapping. That's the kind of, you know, the worship methods are very physical, but it's also known specifically by the idea of the baptism in the Holy Spirit where people are speaking in tongues to evidence of this baptism in the Holy Spirit. And the Pentecostals then see themselves as having something additional to salvation. So they're the kind of, you know, the cooler kids on the block. Part of that Pentecostalism is about being evangelical, is about going out there and telling the whole world their truth. So because they're so physical and so outgoing and so extra, extroverted as it were um you know it kind of makes sense that they'd be evangelical about their pentecostalism or evangelicals that end up being pentecostals yeah i i think you know the the point that not all pentecostals are evangelical it's a good one i mean pentecostalism really emerges out of evangelicalism but that mm. focus that tanya described on um, the baptism of the holy spirit so if the evangelicals said you need to be born again they talked about this kind of fundamental turning or repentance that brought you into this new relationship with god Mm-hmm. Um, Pentecostalism focused on this very physical, embodied experience of the Holy Spirit, which often was seen to occur after you had been converted. And it actually started amongst Black women in the US as a really, I suppose, transformative experience, which absolutely led them to the kind of evangelistic activity that Kenya's talking about. So I was thinking that both Joe and and Tanya are quite right, that there's a very broad um, understanding of Pentecostalism. It it embraces very many different strains of what it means to be Pentecostal. And probably you would describe Pentecostalism as a fairly loose affiliation of a whole number of different movements that um, hold certain things in common and most particularly around baptism by the Spirit. It's a very interesting movement because it's hard to define in some ways. And there are many different flavors of Pentecostalism, as it were, as a church. Um, It's not like more organized versions of Christianity where you think about Anglicanism or Catholicism in Australia that tend to have very um, definite structures, very clear power systems and and clerical orders, etc., my understanding of Pentecostalism is that it's, it tends to be more individualist and it's very easy for someone to nominate themselves as having been led by the Spirit to form their own church, as it were, or their own community of believers. So Tanya, you've written a book called People in Glass Houses, an insider story of a life in and out of Hillsong. Hillsong is the church the Prime Minister belongs to, is that correct? Uh, strictly speaking, it's not correct. He doesn't attend Hillsong, although he is very close and good friends with the pastors that run Hillsong, Brian and Bobby Houston. Scott Morrison attends a church called Horizon Church, which is an Australian Christian church's church. 
which actually Hillsong invented the Australian Christian churches as an umbrella for Pentecostal churches. And Brian oversaw that ACC until 2018 when he left to make his own denomination, Hillsong. The church that Morrison attends has been pastored by direct Hillsong graduates and pastors. You know, he goes to as close to a Hillsong church as possible without having the logo out the front, I guess. I suppose the key thing is the beliefs they have in common. And what what are those? They've got a long list of what they believe. What they actually follow, I don't know. But it's all about a literal interpretation of the Bible and uh, a belief in the spirit that can baptise people after they've been born again a belief in the spiritual manifestations of gifts of, you know, prophecy or tongues or all these kinds of things and a commission to kind of go out into the world and share this same message as the truth. So there's a lot more else that they tend to believe in, but, but that's the basics. What is the prosperity doctrine? That comes up a lot. That, you know, that really came to be popular in the late, sort of in the late 90s and in the early 2000s, which was this idea that, God wants his people to be wealthy, to be rich. And the justification for that would be that if they were wealthy, they could then redistribute finances to people in need. But what they've mainly done is accumulate money in order to build bigger churches, pay themselves much better. But that's the ideology is is that God wants his people to be wealthy monetarily. And I would imagine that Jesus probably doesn't want people to be wealthy. So when you look at preachers from that era, they are very clear that poverty is an injustice. They would talk about redistribution of wealth, uh, and they recognize that there are wealthy people, but they certainly would not be claiming that people deserve to be wealthy. And in fact, wealth is often seen as a bar to salvation. And you look at scripture, the gospels, the parable of the rich man and yeah, so I mean, it's it's a very interesting theological proposition because it's extremely popular in global world countries, particularly Africa, that have very poor populations who are struggling. And you, so you can see the attraction of Pentecostalism of this kind. What it has tended to lead to is significant wealth in the hands of the preachers or prophets who espouse the prosperity gospel, but often no difference in the lives of the believers or very little difference. Could I just circle back and make a quick comment about trying to identify the beliefs of the movement? Because I think maybe Tanya sort of pointed to this or alluded to this. Pentecostals generally don't have or or they're not defined by doctrinal statements. Historically, and I think in the contemporary context, it actually can be quite difficult to pin down what a particular Pentecostal group believes collectively because that may well not be the way in which they understand and define themselves. So I'm not saying that they don't have beliefs in common, but whereas with some denominations, you know, you can very clearly pin down exactly what they think about a whole range of things because that's what they're very concerned about and they'll have big arguments about it and they'll debate it at their theological colleges and their websites will all give a central place to exactly what they believe about specific theological matters. That really is not, I think, generally that is not part of Pentecostal culture. So I think it's one of the difficult things actually even in asking what Hillsong believes or what Scott Morrison believes 
is that there is often a lot of flexibility around mm. the beliefs if you understand that as a set of kind of creedal statements or intellectual statements. That's actually something that's embraced, I would say, uh, in many Pentecostal contexts. So I think one of the one of the challenges is that beliefs can actually change over time quite easily because the leader is you know, led by the spirit or claims to be led by the spirit and says, oh, well, we don't believe that anymore. Now we believe something else or for, for other reasons. And that wouldn't have the kind of impact that it would in, say, a Presbyterian church or even a Catholic church where, you know, there's regular statements about what actually the community believes. I don't know if the others have uh, agree with that, but that is certainly my, my feeling, a part of the difficulty in trying to identify what is Pentecostalism is that it's hard to nail it down to a set of wow. beliefs because that's not, that's not the key thing. What Joan is saying is, is it brings up something that also needs to be recognised about religious movements or religious religions as religions, which is that all religions have quite a spectrum of belief. No matter what the official church says, what people actually believe on the ground can be quite profoundly different and the way people operate on the basis of those beliefs. So in my research around religious radicalization, I would say that all religions, what makes them interesting is, is that spectrum between conservative positions within those religions and people who hold conservative beliefs and act on those beliefs and people who hold more progressive ones. And so when you were talking about the prosperity gospel, that's an example of one position that's towards a more conservative framework and may or may not be just confined to Pentecostal movements, but also can be found to some extent in other um, expressions of Christianity where people are happy to overlook other teachings and use scripture selectively as a mandate for behaving in certain ways. So, you know, if we take it back to the question about Scott Morrison and, you know, his speech at that ACC conference, he actually was very careful to not say anything that was in any way doctrinal or extreme or very clear about his own personal beliefs, except where he talked about the laying on of hands and he talked about Facebook as a tool of the evil one. So that brings you then to Pentecostal interests in uh, demonic warfare and and the work of the devil in the world. And there's, again, a whole spectrum within Pentecostalism around how you would handle that or even view that and whether it's important or not important. Uh, so, again, that was quite interesting to observe that in his speech. What matters in the end is what people say as a person identifying themselves as a particular kind of Christianity does to people who are listening to them speak and how they then take their language and use it for permission or otherwise for their own positions and behaviours. Female identifying artists aged 18 to 35 are invited to enter the Ellen Jose Art Award, a $15,000 non-acquisitive award. Ellen Jose was a pioneer in Australia's urban Indigenous art movement and a radical activist and social justice campaigner. The award is given in the hope that it will support the winning artist's continued development by providing recognition as well as a financial boost. All six finalists will receive an artist fee and have the opportunity for their work to be professionally presented in an exhibition with an accompanying publication. The award is a partnership between the Ellen Jose Memorial Foundation and Bayside City Council. Entries are now open and close on Friday the 27th of August.
head to bayside.vic.gov.au and search for the Ellen Jose Art Award for all the details. A 3CR supporter. Love comes your way What can I say You feel it You're listening to Communication Mixdown on Community Radio 3CR. And I'm talking about religion and politics in Australia with historians Wendy Mayer and Joanne Cruikshank, and the author of People in Glass Houses, an insider's story of a life in and out of Hillsong, Tanya Levin. How does Hillsong see its uh, role in fighting the evil one? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's really interesting because they've become, recently they've become so much more aware, and I mean recently over some years now, they've become so much more aware of their public image that, you know, they don't really want to do any of those unpleasant kind of topics. They, you know, they stay away from, you know, exorcisms or all of that. But from what I understand, in smaller groups, it's still quite real. You know, exorcisms were a part of growing up in the 80s. They were, you know, into the 90s. So just to go back, what, what do you mean by an exorcism? Oh, well, you know, casting out demons as Jesus would have cast them out. And, you know, come out, come out. And, you know, sometimes you can get quite a strong reaction from people. But that was a given because that was all part of Jesus's thing. And so that would happen. But, you know, it's a little bit ugly. Like speaking in tongues, it's a little bit strange to the outsider. So they've calmed a lot of those kind of crazier sides down to make it a lot more palatable. They call it seeker sensitive in the US. So that for the outsider, it's not all strange, weird things going on. But I think in smaller groups, like I said, it does carry on. So, you know, we're taught very strongly in Pentecostalism that there's a a spiritual battle going on and it needs to be fought. So those things that the Prime Minister said are not surprising coming from a Pentecostal, even though I've never heard of kind of praying for people without their consent is one thing, but kind of laying on of hands and praying for them anyway, that's a bit extreme. And given the kind of national discussion on consent, I would have thought he might have stayed away from that but it's obviously something that's important to him so yeah we weren't really encouraged to go around praying for people who didn't want to be touched but yeah it's, it's very much very much blended into the philosophy is all this spiritual stuff going on what is the spiritual warfare you speak of what what are, what are we fighting for what are they fighting for well, against demons and against principalities and powers, we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but principalities and powers, um, you know, that satanic forces from all kinds of levels upward that, you know, seek to destroy your life. Something's going bad. It's, it's you know, it's a spiritual force that could be doing it, not just your own behaviour or your own responsibility. So it's interesting. Uh, Hindu, am I a satanic force? It depends if you renounced all of those multiple gods that you worshipped. I mean, that's how I was brought up, is that, you know, if you've been worshipping all these foreign gods, then you probably got all these demons floating around you because, you know, they're not Jesus, so they must be bad. I guess I guess the reason why this has created a bit of a fuss is that we live in a liberal democracy and there is this uh, yeah. of the separation of church and state. Do the, do the historians want to have a bash? Why do we even need a separation of church and state? Well, fundamentally, it's about deep anxiety about sectarianism within Christianity and and the fact that after the Reformation, there were quite violent wars that went on for decades and decades where people used Christianity as an excuse to 
perpetrate violence against each other. And so the doctrine of the separation of church and state becomes something that becomes enshrined as a way of trying to remove religion and that aspect of religion and those kind of divisive behaviours and and violent behaviours from the political state. And I think it's worth saying that the concern there is not simply that religious people and religious institutions will destabilise the state, but that states have a habit of oppressing or trying to control religious groups, particularly minority religious groups. So the separation of church and state really in its historical formulation, and I think particularly in the Australian context, does go both ways. So it's meant to protect both the state or the the common, I suppose, the common good, the common society and religious people. And that, that has always been a challenge to maintain in the liberal democracy. What's really interesting is that the fiction that religion and politics are separate is something that we're discovering in the 21st century world as being quite problematic. One of the ideas I've been exploring in my work around religious radicalization is the theory from the 20th century that it was primitive political states like Islamic led states or other part the Middle East, etc., that still embraced religion as part of their politics, that therefore were inherently violent. And what my research and other researchers into the whole issue of religious violence since 9-11 occurred have been showing is that interestingly, and as we see white supremacist movements, etc., become more and more normative within European countries and other so-called first world democracies. It's because religion and politics actually operate on the same moral foundations. And, and there's, a, there's fundamentally very little difference between the two in the sense that pol- politics and the way it functions is ideological and often driven by what we call social functional moral values as opposed to ethical or, or you know the way you should behave kind of codes. By social function, I mean that the moral psychologists whose work I work with significantly would argue that um, we've evolved as in terms of functioning together in, in positive ways as groups to have very instinctual gut level decision making processes that happen uh, that allow us to cooperate as groups. And those same gut level decision making processes, which they call social functional moral drivers. So it's like care for others, cause no harm do what is fair, don't cheat. So, so your, your trigger on what is fair or cheating can be triggered very, very easily and often very subconsciously by language that people use, by propositions that people put out. And so the ideologies that lie behind political systems as well as religious systems are actually the same. And the same as economies are also driven, economic models are driven by the same moral foundations or intuitive judgments that people make. So there's very, very interesting work around the evolution of the human brain and and how this all plays into human cooperation and and what makes us function well, but also why those same moral foundations can actually be triggered in ways that cause us to divide and commit violence against each other and the communities to clump as tribes. So Morrison's comment around identity politics was quite interesting because one of the concerns about identity politics is that it's divisive and that it, it causes people to form into you know groups that are adversarial to each other and 
And his language about community, I thought, was quite fascinating, that he wanted to emphasize that it's community that matters, which is an extraordinarily common value across not just Christianities, but also across all religions. Everyone wants, in its best form of, of those religions, wants community to foster and cohere and be caring for each other. So it, it's it's actually quite complex to tease out some of these drivers and what sits in religion and what sits in politics and what sits in economics and even legal systems too. Some of the, the laws that are enacted are often for ideological reasons that are also based on these same drivers. Without identity politics, I don't say I'm an entirely unique person as such, do I? So I think the concern about identity politics for politicians is that they're saying when you have people of a particular racial group arguing for their rights and making political statements and wanting politics to be driven by their agenda is where their concern is, or um, gay, um, gay LGBTQI rights um, and, and marriage equality, those kinds of things can be seen by people with a conservative set of moral drivers to be uh, you know, damaging to society because they're driving a particular group's agenda. Arguably, it's the middle-aged white man who is, that's the identity that drives our politics for the most part, right, mm-hmm. in Australia? Well, yes, and we've seen that recently in the behaviour that's been uncovered in Parliament House and, and all the consequences of that. Particularly with the term identity politics, it's, it does a lot of work, I think, in contemporary conservative discourse particularly. And I think it's hard not to, to read it as, as straightforward dog whistling, the kind of use of identity politics as a, as a scare tactic. I think particularly around LGBTQ rights, which again is not something that Scott Morrison is likely to explicitly decry, but I think sometimes the language of identity politics can be used to kind of signal allegiances against things like Black Lives Matter or against things like marriage equality. And by saying that, I'm not saying that people of conservative politics don't have genuine concerns about the ways in which particular kinds of political claims can actually splinter a sense of common good or common identity. But I think in doing that, there's a real denial of the ways in which particular groups have historically been marginalised and disadvantaged and that that doesn't go away just by ignoring it. That was Dr Joanne Cruikshank, Senior Lecturer in History at Deakin University. You also heard from Professor Wendy Mayer from Australian Lutheran College and Tanya Levin, author of People in Glass Houses, an insider's story of a life in and out of Hillsong. Thank you for joining us and tune in again next week for the second part of our discussion on religion and politics in Australia. We're going out tonight with Soundgarden. This is Jesus Christ Pose.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.